The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good morning. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and the host of the What to Know podcast show. We are here at JP Morgan and uh, broadcasting live, although be, to be brought to you later. Uh, I am sitting down right now with Zach Tracer, who is the healthcare editor at Business Insider. Welcome, Zach. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm happy to have you, and this is going to be fun, uh, particularly based on a few similarities in our uh, path that we chose, and uh, look forward to getting into that. Uh, I also look forward to talking a little more about J.P. Morgan. Your this is you know like our Super Bowl. This is also your Super Bowl, right? Lots of great content and lots of uh, of smart leaders from the right companies in the right place. Uh, but going back in history, and this is where I like to start with a lot of the guests. I noticed that you and I do have something interesting in common, and that is that we both studied Russian uh, and spent some time in Saint Petersburg, Russia. Let's talk a little bit about what the inspiration was, you know, to get into the language and, and spend time over there. Yeah, totally. So I was um, I was studying Russian history in school um, and, you know, essentially realized pretty quickly that if you want to understand history, you want to understand a culture, you really have to speak the language. You can't just read stuff in translation. You have to be able to talk to people and, and read stuff in the original. Um, so I started studying Russian and ended up uh, going over there for a summer. Um, I'll say, you know, summer is definitely the best time to, you know, be in, in St. Petersburg. Yes. The white nights, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's good and bad. I don't know what, what your experience was, but as a 21 and then prior to that, I think like a 20, 19 year old college student, uh, having it stay late all night essentially makes it hard to think that like, oh, I should probably go to sleep so I can get up and go to classes the next day. Yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's tough to, it's a tough language. And so you're, you're sort of up all night and then you're trying to learn in a classroom some of the language. But I mean, the, the nice thing is that you do learn, you know, a fair bit out at, you know, one in the morning or whatever, too. That's true. No, there is that language of the street and sort of <laughs> being more pragmatic. So uh, anyway, it's always cool to see someone that's, you know, done that same thing. Uh, and then not unlike myself, where I chose the marketing path and don't really do anything with Russian, uh, you chose the journalistic path. You know, what sort of inspired you post Russian history and Russian language to head down that path as a journalist. Yeah, so I, I did an internship at, um, I guess, what was then Business Week magazine, now now part of Bloomberg. It was just, I think, had just been acquired at the time. So I did an internship there, kind of liked it, came back and said, well, you know, let me see where this goes. Let me see, you know, how I, how I like this journalism thing. You know, there's sort of a, um, you know, you don't have to go to graduate school or anything. You can just kind of start doing it and see if you like it. And I did it and liked it and kept doing it. And, you know, here we are, you know, roughly a decade later, and I'm still doing it. Well, it's cool. I'll, I'll tell you one funny little aside, and that was uh, because I did Russian studies in undergrad and grad school, I ended up writing a lot and reading a lot in Russian, you know, similar to what you were saying. And I will say, for me personally, it sort of retarded my writing skills in English. I ultimately went on to write a dummies book and, you know, I've written lots of blog posts and columns. So I don't know if that had any impact on you, or maybe you're just great in both languages and so it never slowed you down oh man russian is such a hard language um i mean they say english is hard too for folks learning it but russian is uh, just a terribly hard language um you know I, what i'll say though is i think that some of the same things that like that pushed me to you know study russian history some of the same sort of curiosity wanting to understand you know how societies are changing or why places develop in certain ways you know why you get you know nearly 100 years of sort of uh, totalitarian communist rule in one place and, you know, liberal democracy somewhere else. Um, 
you know, those are kind of the same curiosities or the same questions that push you into, you know, a field like journalism or a field where you get to, you know, talk to lots of interesting people and sort of observe what's going on in a place or a culture. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I guess one of the things um, that I didn't ask you in the questions, but I will now, it shouldn't be a hard one, but healthcare journalism is a very specific one. And I know you were at Bloomberg for several years before this covering health, before you joined Business Insider. You know, what, what, why healthcare? What interested you in that? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, um, you know, the nice thing about healthcare, there's, first off, there's always stuff to do. There's always stuff to write about. Um, it's endlessly fascinating. Um, we're never at risk of running out of things to um, cover. Um, the other thing is it's so important to people. So, you know, everybody has a, a personal experience with healthcare. Everyone's really touched by the system. And it's really one of the biggest um, sort of debates or questions of our time is, you know, how are we going to care for everyone? What are we going to do about healthcare in this country? So getting a front row seat to all that has been just really incredible. No, it's smart. And I guess one of the things I'd love to know is, you know, you were at Bloomberg, which is a very well-known and well-respected publication. You moved over about four months ago, I think, if my LinkedIn sleuthing was correct. Um, how different has it been writing for those two publications, not looking for a good or bad, but just, you know, sort of uh, any noticeable yeah, so I covered healthcare, I guess, a little over three years at Bloomberg, um, which is just an a awesome place to you know start your career and and kind of build up your your skills and worked with a lot of great people. Um, and then I had the the chance to essentially run the healthcare team at Business Insider. Um, so our strategy now is at Business Insider, we're sort of building up our healthcare coverage. Um, Lydia Ramsey, who's our healthcare reporter, had been doing healthcare you know essentially on her own. Um, at Business Insider for several years. Um, and so, you know, the, the folks above me said, well, this is going really well. Let's, you know, double down, triple down on it. We now have me running the team, um, three reporters. Um, you know, in addition to Lydia, we have uh, Aaron Broadwin and Emma Court now from uh, MarketWatch. Um, so it's been, you know, really cool to essentially get to build something new um, and take kind of a new, um, exciting approach to covering uh, healthcare. Well, it's... A brilliant idea, I think, because Business Insider has built such a good business model in and of itself. And to your point, if healthcare, you know, at least post uh, midterm elections is the number one thing on everyone's mind, then why not double or triple down on that? Um, speaking of healthcare, we are at JP Morgan, which is one of the biggest, uh, you know, biotech meets investor conferences, although it's really started to include a lot of other ecosystem players. So, a lot of uh, pharma here. We've had some big acquisitions announced this week. Uh, a lot of med tech, digital health, et cetera. Uh, you've been at JP Morgan for a few days now and without spilling beans on stories that you're going to write about, um, which, which stories have caught your attention? You know, I think um, we're focused on just a number of things. Um, obviously, you know, you can't, you know, you start the week with um, Lily acquiring Loxo. Um, and, you know, that just sort of sets the tone for the week. Obviously, you had Bristol Solgene last week. Um, so mergers are always, you know, when you ask a reporter what's top of mind mergers, <laughs> at least in, in business reporting. Um, I think the other thing, though, is sort of how folks are refashioning the healthcare system. Um, so, I mean, the, the CVS presentation yesterday was just overflowing, um, which was kind of surprising. Um, you know, they, they rolled out some new details about what they're going to do with Aetna now that they've acquired Aetna, how they're going to kind of use the combined company to take better care of people. That's fascinating um, to me and I think um, definitely worth watching. Um, and then, you know, all the way on the other side, you had, um, you know, Bluebird Bio um, talk about sort of what kind of model is needed to pay for drugs that might cost, you know, a million dollars or two million dollars. Um, Novartis has, you know, been talking about this same problem for a while, sort of how do you 
you know, afford or how do you pay for it within the existing healthcare system, these really expensive drugs, what, what kind of model changes does that require? So you have people on, you know, totally different parts of the healthcare system, all thinking about, you know, what the future looks like and, um, what, you know, innovations or, or changes are needed to, to get there and to make sure that, you know, folks get the care they need. Um, so, you know, coming from two very different sides, I think that's what, um, you know, I've been most interested in. So I want to expand on that a little bit because uh, I think you were at some of our digital brunch the other day and I had the um, luxury of interviewing Marcus Osborne at Walmart and he made some interesting statements at the end, not a shock, but essentially, you know, part of why they were expanding on their legacy. A lot of people forget that they actually have done a lot in the wellness and healthcare space, including making a lot of uh, generic uh, pharmaceuticals, you know, very inexpensive but he talked about something that I know drives the pharma and biotech companies crazy, and that is like there just shouldn't be this cost in the system. These drugs, you know, that cost a, a quarter of a cent to produce, why is it so expensive? And I did remind him gently, uh, you know, there's a lot of research that goes into this. There's a lot of clinical trials. That said, it's always good to take cost out of the system. But looking at a more macro picture, you know, so you have the CVS Aetna, you have this happening, you have Amazon talking to, you know, uh, JP Morgan Chase and, or not even just talking to, partnering with them and um, uh, Berkshire Hathaway. What is this going to look like? And I'm, I'm sort of tipping our hand to a future question of like the future of healthcare, but we might as well tackle it here. You know, how is this going to, A, will this work? And B, how materially different is this going to be? you know, over the next five years, do you think, or is it going to just be one of those things where we hear a lot about it, but it doesn't necessarily have teeth for a while? Oh man, I'd, I'd love to know the answer to that. I'd love to know what, you know, Atul Gawande is up to at the, uh, you know, Amazon Berkshire, JP Morgan thing. Um, I think, you know, one thing that we're seeing broadly is that employers are sort of sick of, you know, rising healthcare costs and sick of not having control over, um, you know, this huge part of their um, budget. Plus, they are realizing, I think, increasingly that their workers aren't necessarily getting great health care for all this spending that they're doing. So that's, a, I mean, a big theme we'll be watching. And I, you know, I'm super excited to see what um, uh, Dr. Gawande and the folks there do. Um, I, I have no idea, you know, whether they'll succeed. Certainly many people have, you know, tried before. Um, on the other hand, you know, if, if somebody's going to succeed, they're, they're obviously well positioned to do it. Um, and, and just to go back to what you were saying about uh, Marcus Osborne, um, you know, I think one of the, the top questions that we're always asking is, what is Walmart's healthcare strategy going to look like? I think, you know, on one hand for their own employees, and then in terms of, you know, what their consumer-facing strategy would be. And I think, you know, Marcus has obviously got lots of ideas and, and lots of things that he's <laughs> thinking about, but I'll be, you know, I think five years from now, Walmart is definitely a, a company to watch in healthcare. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess, let me ask you um, one follow-on question. I interviewed, and I, I think this will go out this week, so people have heard this hopefully already, but the uh, CEO of Cedar, uh, Florian Otto, and he, he mentioned something interesting to me that you probably knew that I should have known, but he said one of the issues here with um, the providers, the payer providers is, you know, they're less incentivized to invest in wellness because of the fact that if you move jobs, very often your healthcare changes, right? Or even, I know we've changed healthcare pro providers recently, W2O. And in Germany, you actually like a 401k or other sort of financial instrument, you can actually take your healthcare plan with you. Do you see a future, you know, of something like that in the United States anytime soon or? I think the sort of the 
political makeup of, of healthcare in the U.S. is always a, a tough one to predict. I mean, I think if you can tell me, you know, who will be president in 2020 and who will control the Senate in 2020, like we can start <laughs> trying to figure out what healthcare will look like. But I think um, you could see things going in very different directions depending on the outcome of, you know, the next election. No, that's a fair comment. Um, and, and I'm curious to know <laughs> those answers myself. Um, one of the things I did want to drill down to, to, into, which I think is related to this, is back in November, I was going through your articles. You wrote something for BI Prime titled, The Top Healthcare Executive Pointed Out What's Broken About America's Health Insurance System in a Single Sentence. Uh, I was quite intrigued, and you and I had a little exchange over email. The punchline here is essentially that the single sentence was shared by the Express Scripts Chief Medical Officer, and he stated that High deductible health plans are designed for wealthy people and sold to poor people. That's a pretty provocative statement. And, you know, I'm assuming you felt like there was some truth to that. Let's talk a little bit about what that means and why that has the potential to hurt us long term. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, over the last probably decade or so, you've seen high deductible plans really take off. And so this is, you know, a health insurance plan where you might have to spend several thousand dollars up front um, each year before your insurance really kicks in. And the problem with that is that a lot of people don't have several thousand dollars to spend on their health care. So what um, folks like um, Steve Miller at Express Scripts, and, you know, you've heard this kind of across the board, um, what those folks are saying uh, is essentially high deductible plans aren't working for people. You know, instead of getting the care they need, folks are delaying care. They're ending up in the emergency room. They're ending up sick. Um, and, the, you know, this experiment with high deductibles over the last decade or so just really hasn't worked out. Um, I think CVS has um, made some similar comments. Um, Larry Merlo, the, the CEO of CVS, was on stage yesterday with Dave Ricks of um, Eli Lilly um, talking about drug pricing. And I think they both would agree that you know, these sort of high deductibles or high um, out-of-pocket costs for patients, particularly at the start of the year, are a, a, a huge barrier to getting care. Um, they might differ on the, the solution, but I think, you know, what um, Dave Rick said, and I'm, you know, paraphrasing here is essentially, it doesn't make sense that your insulin costs, you know, $1,000 in January when your health plan starts and is essentially free in December at the end of the year. You know, you want folks to be able to take their insulin throughout the year. Do you think there's enough discourse about this to help change the path or are we sort of set down a course that's going to take, you know, that's going to run its path over the next three or four years at least? You know, one thing that's really interesting um, in the data is there's essentially been a, a pause in the increase of high deductible plans. So for the last few years, the percentage of, um, you know, employers that are using these plans has been essentially flat. It stopped going up. It hasn't gone down yet. But I think um, what we're hearing is people are starting to reevaluate them, starting to ask, you know, at the very least, how can we make these better for um, employees? So to, to go back to um, CVS again, um, you know, they're rolling out a, essentially a list of drugs where if you have a high deductible plan, these are drugs that you can get like for free. Um, and there's a, a kind of a carve out in the way the rules are written for high deductible plans where you can give people, you know, certain drugs essentially for chronic diseases for free because you'd rather these people take these drugs and stay healthy, stay out of the emergency room um, than, you know, worry about, oh, how much are we spending on something like insulin? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I want to ask a little bit about um, how covering healthcare has changed because you've been in it for a while now, at least a few years, right? And so what have you looked at, you know, let's say five years ago versus today and, and what the differences has been? I mean, broad strokes, I think it's, it's similar in that you're, you know, you have the same group of big players um, and you have to, you know, ask tough questions and try to figure out what's going on. Um, we're all a little bit more tech reporters than we used to be, I would say. 
Um, you've seen, you know, I think most prominently Google followed by Apple and then obviously Amazon all um, make various forays into healthcare. Um, you know, Google sort of explicitly with um, GV and Verily um, and stuff like that. Um, Apple more and more uh, explicitly um, with, you know, the EKG and the watch and things like that. Um, you know, research kit, health kit. Um, Amazon bought PillPack, um, but I think more to come there. Um, so we're all a little bit more tech reporters, so that's that's been fascinating. Um, and then I think, you know, broad strokes that we're asking the, the same questions we were five years ago, which is, you know, what what of the stuff that, you know, folks are selling, what works? Um, you know, kind of what's what's going to help folks? What You know, how much is all this going to cost? Is anything actually going to bring costs down? So, you know, the big questions are the same, but the, the players are changing. And then, I mean, the other piece of that is all the mergers, right? So you have you know, fewer and fewer huge players in this ecosystem. Yeah, no, those are good points. And I, I'm guessing that on the technology front are having to be a little bit more of a tech reporter. Also, a lot of this digital health where you have this whole slew of startups. And we were talking to a fairly large, uh, you know, innovation arm of a healthcare company the other day and, you know, talking about their investment strategy and sort of how they're nurturing. And uh, it really does change the landscape when you've got all this, you know, true impl um, implementation of AI and remote monitoring and data science involved. And it probably makes you have to be that much more savvy of an editor or reporter. I, I think that's right. I mean, you really, you just have to, um, you know, ask tough questions. You have to ask people, you know, what's the data that shows this approach works, especially with, you know, startups and digital health. There's a lot of big claims that, you know, don't necessarily pan out over time. Um, and, you know, and I think employers actually are starting to realize that too. Yeah, no, I, I am sure that that is the case because it does feel like everyone's sort of changing the world and it's like, you can't all change the world. You know, maybe a few of you will. Um, we did talk a little bit about this already, but sort of one last question before I dive into a little bit more about you. Uh, what other things are you seeing in the next, you know, five or 10 years in the healthcare front uh, that interest you? Yeah, I mean, I think a big one, again, is, is going to be the role that um, employers play in changing the system, at least in the U.S., um, so, you know, in the absence of big political changes, and I don't want to sort of forecast what will happen, you know, in 2020 or 2024 politically, um, I think that employers are saying, what can we do to sort of improve healthcare for our workers and also either uh, lower our costs or at least make sure they're not going up, you know, two or three times uh, the rate of inflation. Um, so I think that's a theme that we'll be watching um, pretty closely uh, over the next five or 10 years. Um, you know, I, and then I think... Um, you know, to take sort of a left turn off that, you know, the, the population is aging quite a bit. Um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about, um, especially at JP Morgan, talking about sort of big innovations, you know, biotech deals, stuff like that. But I think, you know, how we care for the aging population in this country will be a huge question. And it's not going to be about, you know, million dollar large molecule drugs. It's going to be about how can we deliver more healthcare at home, um, potentially in a, in a pretty hands-on way, you know, home visits, you know, nurses at home, things like that. Um, and that's something that I think we're, we're pretty focused on as well is, you know, what is the, you know, Medicaid going to look like 10 years from now? What, you know, Medicaid, Medicare, what, you know, that's an increasing part of U.S. healthcare spending. How are we going to, um, you know, innovate there and make sure it doesn't take up more and more of, you know, particularly state budgets? Um, you know, this is a topic we can <laughs> sort of chat about all day, but I think, you know, essentially in a lot of states now, Medicaid is a bigger spending item than education. Um, so that's sort of telling, you know, are we sort of, um, you know, where, where are we, what are we going to prioritize? How are we going to control that? 
Yeah, no, it makes sense. And we did do uh, a particular panel on that at our digital brunch, and I had the luxury of sitting down with Chathan uh, Perrick, who is from uh, P&G Ventures, and he sp- specializes in sort of the whole aging um, portfolio that they're looking at and had some very interesting uh, remarks on that. So a little sneak preview. If you've already heard his, uh, you know, good. If you haven't, then go out and check that out. Uh, this is where I do downshift and, and get to know a little more about you personally. So one of the things I always like to find out is um, if you'd be willing to tell us something about tell us something about yourself that people don't know that you're willing to share. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'll, I'll keep it on, on journalism. Um, you know, when I was in, in college, I really wanted to be a photojournalist. Um, and this was like the sort of the peak of the hype around, you know, everybody's going to be a one man band. So you're going to have to take pictures, write articles, do podcasts and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I did a, a ton of photojournalism, um, you know, had pictures published in you know major newspapers and stuff like that. And then ended up in, in business journalism where you essentially never take photos ever. Um, so it's, it's been kind of a funny, uh, turn off that, um, but, uh, you know, it just goes to show you, you know, you pick up all these skills along the way and then you're like, what am I, <laughs> what am I doing here? But at least I get to do a little bit of uh, podcasting now and again. We have, you know, outlets like Pinterest or Instagram and others where we can now share those. And so even if we uh, don't do it professionally, we get to scratch the edge, right? Yeah. Um, next question is, I like to always ask smart people, you know, books that they've read in the last year or two. I've now started to widen that a little bit to podcast too, if you wanted to include anything or listen to a book. Cause I now start to listen to books versus, uh, reading them. So anything that you care to. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll, I'll talk about two, if that's okay. One sort of businessy and then one fiction. Um, so I, um, love Colson Whitehead and I think, you know, Underground Railroad is one of the books that's kind of affected me the most over the past couple of years, really recommend it to people, um, quite a bit. And I know, I think he's working on a book that's supposed to come out like this year or next year that I'm excited about too. Um, and then just in, um, business world, like I've, <laughs> because I, I just took over, um, a team and started managing people, I've been trying to read some, some business books. So I guess if anyone's listening to this and has suggestions, you know, email me. <laughs> um, but I, I just read, um, taking the work out of networking by, uh, Karen Wicker, um, and thought that like one of the nice things about that book is essentially it breaks down this sort of mystifying world of connecting with people, networking, a lot of the work that I think you and I do into this very like understandable step-by-step process. So even though, you know, reading it, a lot of it is familiar or stuff that you might do automatically, it's really helpful to see it written out and, and uh, systematized almost in a way that's like, you can give this book to anybody and say, here's how you be better at this like really important skill for, I think both of our jobs. Yeah, well, first of all, I think you're the first person out of 100 plus episodes to actually solicit recommendations. So I appreciate that. And I know someone the other day asked if we could uh, perhaps organize all the book recommendations because we've actually had a tremendous amount that are really smart and that could probably benefit you. So kudos on that one. And I do agree. Uh, I do try to mentor a lot of different people. And one of the things that I always stress with them is the power of you know networking. I've been doing it for 20 plus years and learned a lot of it along the way. I wish someone had given me a how-to guide because there are some things I think that could have gotten me further faster. But um, anyway, I like, I like those recommendations. Uh, the last question, which is purely a fun one, but I'm always curious to see how people answer. Uh, you're stranded on a proverbial deserted island. You can only take one album with you to listen to. Ideally, not a greatest hits or compilation. Which album would you pick and why? Yeah, I think I'd go with um, Europe 72 from The Grateful Dead. Um, it's just a great, I guess it's two CDs. I don't know if that's cheating. Not cheating. <laughs> that, that's actually smart. I've had a couple people that have picked live albums, 
which uh, have sort of doubled as greatest hits, which I do allow to slip through. So uh, I feel like, you know, that's a that's a good choice and, and a pragmatic choice. Yeah, no, I just, I you know, um, kind of grew up listening to their Grateful Dead, love them. Um, and I think on a deserted island, it's the kind of thing where you need to be able to chill out a little bit. You know, you might as well. You'd probably not much going on there. Yeah, a little fermented coconut juice and a little sun. And I think you might be the first to actually pick a Grateful Dead album, which is... Uh, that's shocking. Impressive that we've made it this far and, and no one did. I had a weird streak at South by Southwest last year. I had like three or four people within a two-week period pick um, Bruce Springsteen after not having any. So maybe we'll go on a run of Grateful Dead now. Uh, anyway, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, uh, host of the What's in a Podcast show. We're recording this live at JP Morgan. I've had the pleasure of sitting down with Zach Tracer, who's the healthcare editor at Business Insider. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know. 